Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the second week of our series called Our Mission. This week, Pastor Mike will be teaching from 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 8. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that down in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. You know, I was reading something a few days ago, and it was talking about all the projected big movies in 2023. And they basically said it's, you know, it's superheroes and sequels. You know, that's kind of it. You know, I just, there aren't many big movies anymore that aren't some kind of sequel. And, and while sequels maybe are more common, it's really not anything new. Actually, I, I thought about like a long-standing film franchise that goes all the way back to 1975. That's, you know, before some of you were born. I mean, it's a long time ago, but yet they're still making movies. I'm thinking specifically of the Rocky franchise. The first movie, Rocky One, came out in 1975. And since then, there have been six Rocky movies. And then, and then I think in 2013, they started to figure out, okay, well, it's kind of uh, hard to have a professional boxer that's in his mid-60s and make it at all realistic. So then they kind of spun it off into Creed. And so then they started this new franchise. And, and now Rocky is the, the, you know, the teacher, the mentor of uh, Apollo Creed's son, Adonis. And, um, and, and now in that, you know, and actually there's a new Creed movie coming out this year, another sequel. And uh, now a, an important theme in all of the movies is the importance of the trainer. So think about it for those that remember back the first and the second, you know, it was Mickey. And, you know, Rocky was kind of like this uh, very talented but undisciplined athlete who had always underperformed. And now he's given this chance. And, and Mickey came alongside as his trainer and he pushed him in new ways. And it brought out the best in him, helping him become a champion. And then in Rocky III, Mickey dies and Rocky becomes unfocused and, and, and has lost his edge. Well, then you have the nemesis from the first two movies, Apollo Creed, comes alongside and now becomes his friend and becomes his trainer and he helps him rediscover the eye of the tiger and regain the championship form. Or even in the newer movies, where the whole idea with the Creed movies, here you have Rocky, who's now an old retired boxer, and he reaches out to the son of Apollo Creed, Adonis, and he says, okay, here, let me become your trainer. And he helps him realize his potential and now he becomes the champion boxer. Now, what would you think if, in thinking about this, if I told you that Sylvester Stallone, in talking about the movies, especially in his later movies, said that he grew to understand this role of a trainer in writing it in the movies, not just because it's part of the plot line, but he saw it as an important aspect of a spiritual truth for those who seek to follow Jesus. Now, I'm surprised you actually, Stallone said that. In 2006, he did an interview, uh, you know, before the last Rocky movie, you know, he did it with Citizen Link, and he talked about part of his motivation for making these later films was to convey spiritual concepts that he was rediscovering as he rediscovered his own faith. He said this, I was raised in a Catholic home, a Christian home, and I went to Catholic schools and I was taught the faith, and, as I, went as far as, and I went as far as I could with it, until one day I got into the so-called real world and I was presented with temptation and I kind of lost my way and made a bunch of bad choices. And then he talked about how these bad choices left him unsatisfied and especially he saw how he put his career before his family and the regrets that he had. And as he dealt with that, it drove him back to his spiritual heritage. He continued in the interview, the more I go to church and the more I turn myself over to the process of believing in Jesus and listening to his word, and having him guide my hand, the more I feel that the pressure is off of me now. 
And then he went on in the interview and he talked about the importance of that role of a trainer and saying that in the church that just as an athlete needs a trainer to be successful, to be victorious. So he said, I think that that's true in the Christian walk. Now, what do you think of that? Do we need a spiritual trainer in a sense, a mentor to help us in our spiritual walk? Is that essential? What does the Bible say about that? Now, even to help you think about that, let me kind of seemingly take a turn, but you'll see where it's going. Let me ask you this. When you think of a follower of Christ, what do you call that person? I think for most of us, commonly in our culture, we say, okay, well, that's a Christian. That's a, you know, somebody that follows and believes in Jesus. But do you know when you look in the Bible, as the early believers talked about themselves, they didn't call themselves Christians. That's not the term that they used. And, and, and I think it's really significant when you look at this. We think of it as a term, but it's a term that I think has some cultural baggage to it. And to illustrate that, let me think about this. There was a survey that was done last year, Pew Forum, and they found that 63% of Americans self-identify themselves as Christians. Now, does that seem high to you? How many of you would say that in your experience, six out of 10 people that you interact with share your faith and your commitment to Christ? Um, half, any, any a quarter, 10 to 10, you know, 10%, how low do we go? So why is it that we say, okay, 63% of people identify themselves as, as Christians, but yet in our experience, it doesn't seem to at all match, you know, the people that we interact with. And here's one of the reasons why I think that's the case. Again, in our culture, we, we have a definition of what a Christian is. And it might differ from what we think of a follower of Christ. A follower of Christ, what the Bible says, well, there's a commitment, there's a, there's a change of lifestyle. Well, culturally, for a lot of people, well, they might say, well, you know, I've always been a Christian. I was born in a Christian home, meaning my parents were Christian, so therefore I'm Christian. You know, I kind of inherit it. Or, you know, some people would say, you know, well, because I'm not a, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Jew, so therefore I'm a Christian. Or other people would say, well, well, Christianity is what's what, a belief system. And so it's what I believe. I, I believe certain things. And so because I believe in Jesus, well, I'm a Christian. Other people say, well, no, it's a lifestyle. Some people say, well, no, it's a decision. And there was some point in the past where I went forward or maybe I was baptized or, or maybe I went through a class, a catechism class, and, and I was told then that I was a Christian and that's what I am. So what is a Christian? And is Christian even the right term to identify ourselves as followers of Christ? Here's what you need to realize. That's not the name that's given in the Bible. It's not the name that the earlier, earliest followers of Christ used to identify themselves. They referred to themselves not as Christians, but as disciples. In fact, if we go to the book of Acts, which is, you know, about the early church, and if you look in the book of Acts, over 30 times just in the book of Acts, the early followers of Christ referred to themselves as disciples. But if you look at the whole of the Bible, the word Christian is only there three times. And it's never used of the early believers describing themselves. In fact, let me take you to the first place that it's mentioned in Acts chapter 11. In Acts 11, it's talking about this church in the city of Antioch. And this church was growing. It's the first church outside of, of, of Israel. And look what it says about this church as they grew. Acts 11:26. For a whole year they met, that's the believers, met with the church and they taught with a great number of people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so here's what it's saying, is that they, as they met, 
what did they consider themselves? The disciples, that's how they identified themselves. But meanwhile, you had people outside of the church who's watching this group of people grow, and they were the ones that gave them this identity as Christians. They were the ones that gave them that name. So the term Christian isn't, it isn't from God, it isn't from the Bible, it isn't what the early church believed themselves. They called themselves disciples. And some of that title, I think, is actually directly from Jesus himself. So let's look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28. You know, this great statement of Jesus, you know, giving to the church, here's your mission right before he ascends to heaven. Look what he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. It's not make Christians. It's not make students. It's make disciples. So that in the mind of Jesus, that's something, what it's a description of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that's what you need to realize. It's not just a name. It's not just a title. It's actually a description of something of the character of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You see, the word disciple was a word that would have been very common in that day. It just meant a learner, an apprentice. Uh, But it was used to describe the relationship between a master and a student. And and here's what you need to realize, is that relationship was very different than the student-teacher relationship we think of our day. You see, because the disciple didn't just go to class for a couple hours. The disciple actually lived with the teacher. They hung out with them, so they they not only learned, you know, the content, but they lived with them in everyday life to see this, you know, this, to, to, to learn, you know, what's their heart, who are they? You could even differentiate it this way. You know, when we think of the teacher-student relationship, the teacher is seeking to teach the student what he knows. The disciple is seeking to teach a student who they are, to teach the student to become like them. And so more than anything, it's this relationship. It's a relationship between the student and the master where the, you know, the student seeks to get to know the master, to become like him, to know not only his thoughts, but his heart, his motivations, to know what it learn, looks to live out these ideas. The ultimate goal is to become like the teacher. The Bible teaches us throughout. Look what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 6. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's our goal, to be like the teacher, to be like Jesus. But look what it says in Ephesians. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's what we want to be. We want to be like him. So when we see this, that's the description. It's, the tit- it's not just a title. It's a description of who we are. So it's really important, but then we have to ask, what's that actually mean? What's it actually mean to be a disciple? And in this, I, you know, we don't want to kind of say, well, here's my opinion, here's my experience. Okay, let's go back, dig back in Scripture, spend some time. What does the Bible teach about what this actually means? And the first thing that I want you to see is that it's, as we've kind of mentioned before, it's all about a relationship. It's not about a religion. It's not about rules. It's not about performance. It's about, it's about relationship. It describes a relationship between the, you know, the student and the one that we follow. In fact, if you think about it, the whole concept of discipleship has no meaning outside of relationship. It's all about relationship. I'm a disciple of Jesus because I, want, I have a relationship with him. I want to grow in that relationship. I want to know not only what he thinks, but who his heart is, who he is. I want to become more like the one that I love. Now, some people say, well, wait a second. Well, isn't it also belief system? Well, yeah. Isn't it also, is it some rules? Not really. It's, 
well, shouldn't we have a changed life? Well, yes. But here's what you need to realize, is that the changed life is an outgrowth of the relationship. We don't start with rules and go to relationship. We go with relationship and go to rules. Let me try to illustrate it. In a, in a relationship, you understand. Okay, some 30 years ago, I stood in front of a bunch of people in Wellington, Florida, and I married this beautiful woman. And, and I made this pledge in marriage to, you know, to love her for better or for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health, as long as we both shall live. And, and you look at that and you say, oh, I recognize Sandy. Who's the guy with her? You know, she's like, yeah, that's, that was me. I once had hair. I once had a lot of hair. I miss my hair. I miss being able to do that. I just, and maybe in heaven I'll have hair. I just, you know, but the thing is, is I may look a lot different. She hasn't changed much. But we made this commitment. And when I want you to think about my relationship with my wife is just that. It's a relationship. My life has radically changed, but it's not based on a set of rules that she laid out for me. It's, it's you know, the changes are not, you know, that, you know, she said, okay, well, if we're going to get married, well, you have to do this, this, and this, and this, and then, and then we're going to get married. That's not how it worked. What we did is we made this lifelong commitment. We said, okay, I want this relationship. We're going to commit each to each other. We're going to love each other. I'm going to seek to put your needs before my own, to, to um, you know, love you unconditionally. And what happened? Life changed. So if you're married, has your life changed? Do you spend money differently than before you were married? Do you spend your time differently than before you were married? How about your friends? You know, think about the friends that you hung out with before you were married. Probably not the same group of people. No, things have changed. Everything has changed. In my life, everything has changed drastically. But not, Sandy didn't tell me, you've got to change all these things, and then we have relationship. No, I desired the relationship. I committed myself to that relationship. And because of the nature of the relationship with my wife, you see, I'm saying, then I said, okay, I want to align myself, every aspect of my being, with what it means to be married, what it means to put you first. So all of me has changed because of that relationship. Now, that's what it's teaching here is about a relationship with God, is that I, being a disciple means that I commit myself to this relationship with Jesus. And then I say, okay, it's not that I have to jump, jump through rules and that I have to do this to prove that, I, you know, that I'm good enough for God. No, I commit myself to that relationship based on what Jesus has done for me at the cross. But because of the nature of discipleship, everything else is going to change. Now, in this, there is a difference because in my relationship with my wife, we were two peers that came together and have helped each other grow. When I commit myself to a relationship with Jesus, it's not a peer. He's my mentor. He's my example. He's my king. He's my God. And, and so it's something where I literally not only let him change me, but I want to become like him as my mentor. See, again, in that time, a disciple didn't just go to class every once in a while. He actually went and lived with the mentor, with the teacher, so that he would not only learn everything that the teacher knew, that he learned who they were. So you want to learn this way of life so that you follow just what Jesus says, follow me, walk in the path that I walk in. That's what Paul talks about and describes in Ephesians 4. You know, he calls us to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We put on a new self. We change that radically. Why? Because we're changed in the image of God. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means that I go through life and I'm asking, you know, if Jesus were here, how would he handle it? How would he make this decision? If Jesus had this conflict with this person, if he had been wronged, what would he do? 
How would he handle this, this conflict, this difficulty? I want to be like Jesus. I want to know his heart. I want to know his mind. Jesus, whatever you're there, I, I, want, to do who, who, I want to do what you would do. And so I want to spend my life getting to know you better, getting to know your heart better so that I can more and more align myself with your example. You see, literally it's saying to not, give me direction. And a disciple, if I really understand a discipleship of Christ, it means before I know the answer, I'm going to tell you my response is yes. Because there are times that God will tell us to do things that we don't like. There are times that God will tell us to do things that don't make sense. But if we're truly an ex- a disciple, you see what it means is that I commit myself to this because that what it, that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, when we think of the cultural term of Christian, this is a very different description, isn't it? A Christian could be so many things, but are you a follower of Christ, a disciple? That's uncomfortable. See, it's being a, a follower, not just a student. Our goal isn't just to know about Jesus, but it's to get to know him, to experience that life-changing power. If I was a student, that could be just a part of my life. That's what I go and I do for a couple hours a day. You see, I, I can be at a church and I can, well, this is my Sunday me. This is who I am at church and, and who I am outside of church is very different. That's a student. A disciple says, no, I want to follow Christ. And it's not just a belief system. It's, a, it's an all-encompassing identity. Look at what Jesus said about this in, in describing what it meant to follow him in Matthew 16. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what it means. That's a huge commitment. This relationship with Christ that seeks to try to become more and more like him. Now, in this, you know, I want to say, okay, where do we stand? You know, there may be some of us here that sit there and, man, if I really evaluate my life, I've always considered myself a Christian, but do I match up with this? You know, on a regular basis, we'll have people come up and they will say, you know, I've considered myself a Christian. Boy, I've been raised in the church, but I realize, using this, they may not use this terminology, but in essence, I realize I'm not a disciple. Yeah, I realize I have the, the, the belief, but I haven't ever really had the relationship, the commitment. My life doesn't reflect that. My friends, if you're here, I want you to realize that's the invitation that God gives. Jesus said, follow me. Become my disciple. Follow me. And yes, it is a commitment. Yes, it is hard. It's, it's, it's a life-altering. But I tell you, it's life-altering in the most positive way. And if you've never trusted in Christ in that way, I hope that you pray and pray and do so. I'd love to explore that more with you. For those of us who are followers of Christ, it's a challenge for each one of us to say, is this defining my life? Am I becoming more like him? Am I, am I just settling for being a Christian, a Sunday morning thing, or am I truly a disciple, a follower? Now, how do we get there? And here's what we need to realize is that the way to get there, the only way to get there is in the context of relationships, of intentional relationships with other believers, deep relationships with other believers. In fact, I'll make a strong statement here. I believe the more I study the Bible, the more I believe it is impossible to grow to maturity in our relationship with Jesus Christ if we are not connected in discipling relationships that focus on our spiritual growth. Now, I'm not saying you cannot grow spiritually. There is a sense that we can grow in our own individual walk, and there, we can grow, but only so far. 
See, if, I'm, if it's just me by myself, I can only go so deep in my relationship with Christ. It's always going to be stunted. But if I want to grow to maturity, if I want to grow to become all that God intends for me, I cannot do it apart from these discipling relationships. The Bible's teaching on this is clear, and it's throughout the Bible. Let me give you another passage where it teaches this idea in, in, in Ephesians 4. It says, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ. So how do we get built up when we're all, we're being invested in and then we start doing? And that's how we not only build up, but then what does it say? Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I want to be there. I want to be mature. I want to be grown up in Christ. But do you see what it's saying? I cannot get there on my own. See, this only happens, this kind of depth and this kind of growth only happens in the context of, of discipling relationships, of connectedness within the church. Our culture is very individualistic. And there is a place for that. But I think in an American culture where we're so individualistic, we so emphasize our personal relationship with Christ and our personal time, which is all really important, to the detriment of underemphasizing this community of, of connecting as, with other people as part of our growth. So if we, decide this, if we want to grow, it's going to be part of this intentional relationship. And it's because discipleship isn't just learning new things. It's focused on the application of biblical truth. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, we looked at a few moments ago in that passage in 1 Thessalonians 1. And let me look at that again. And so let me look at verse 4, and you see this emphasis. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. For you know what kind of men we prove to be amongst you. And so here he's saying, okay, we taught you these truths, here's the knowledge, but you also saw us. You know what kind of men we were. We were living amongst you, and you saw, you saw our lifestyle. Then he continues, verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So what happened? They became imitators. They became like, they became disciples. That's what disciple is where I'm not only looking at Jesus, but I'm looking at Jesus through other people. You see, the early disciples, they got to walk with Jesus. We don't get that. And so how do I grow to understand Jesus? It's through other people who are more mature, and that's what's happening. You saw our life, and then you imitated us as we were trying to imitate Christ. Not only that, he continues in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So it's not only you followed us, but then you lived a life so that you let other people follow you. You became the example that others, you were not only being discipled, but you were discipling other people. God has called us to that kind of relationship. And, and some of that, when we think about our church, our church, the Sunday morning service is half of what we do. And if you're here, I'm glad you're here, but if this is all that you experience, you're missing something essential. See, that's why we put such great emphasis on this whole idea of community, why we have groups before and, you know, before and the service. We have, um, you know, we have, you know, even now, groups that, people that come to the, uh, the early service they're at, and they have at 8.15, and we have men's groups and women's groups. We have young couples groups. We have ministry groups. We have new things that we're even starting now. We have all these different ministries that we're just saying, how do we continue to create more opportunity for you to connect? for you to connect with people and just walk through life and saying, how do we grow together? Because it's essential. 
And even in Sunday morning, if you look in the notes in the front, you know, you have to fill in the blank. And, and for people like me, I need to do that. It keeps me engaged. But on the back, there's discussion questions. Now, why is that? But I love it if you actually talk to somebody and say, hey, how do we live this out? How do we, what does it look like to actually apply these truths? And if you do that with other people, that's part of growth. We want to encourage that. You see, we've got to walk together because when we look at this application of truth, what it lives it means to live out, it's something that is, is becoming like Christ is something that is caught more than taught. You see, it's not just teaching an important truth that we get in our mind. It's modeling so that it's caught, so that we pick up not only the set of beliefs, but the values and what drives us and the heart behind these things and the application, what it looks means to live out. Here's a lot of things I can read, and if I have never seen it, I'm not going to know what it looks like. I mean, if you think about in Ephesians 5, it talks about marriage. And it talks about, I can look at the Bible, and it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's wonderful. What a great challenge. I want to be that kind of husband to my wife. What's that mean? What's it mean to actually love my wife in that way? It says to lead my wife. Well, how do I lead her and, and, and in a sense put her first and at the same point in time, you know, love her and lead her? How do I put those things together? How, what's it mean when we're in the middle of conflict? What's it mean in the middle of, of big decisions? You see, if I don't have other men who are more mature than me, who have walked that path, who have a good example of their marriage that I can hang out with and say, hey, what's this look like? I'll never figure it out on my own. We understand this in other areas. You know, let me give an example. You know, we, uh, at the end of last year, we were looking at Ephesians, and we talked about the spiritual uh, armor, the armor of God that God has given us. In Ephesians 6, 7, it says, you know, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So it's saying that the, the Bible is like this uh, sword, now, let me use that illustration of the sword to kind of illustrate this idea. So, okay, let's say somebody, kids, give, give me the sword, and, okay, and, and whether it's, you know, physical or whether it's spiritual, let's take the physical. I've got the sword. I want to learn how to use it. And whether it's sparring or if it's more serious, okay, I'm, I'm going to be in a fight, and I learned it, need to learn to be able to use it to be able to survive in battle. Now, what if I say, okay, I'm going to train, and here's what I'm going to do. My whole training strategy is I'm going to get books, and I'm going to read and I'm going to read every book that I can about sword play. And it might even tell me some practice moves. So it's going to tell me as I practice, I'm going to practice this, I'm going to strengthen. And I have, you know, I've read, you know, I've read a dozen books on sword play. I've been out there practicing all the things that the book tells me to do so. And now I go out and I test myself against an experienced swordsman. How am I going to do? I'm going to get creamed. I mean, I'm, if it's a real fight, I'm, I'm dead. I'm destroyed. Now, can a book help me learn? Yes, but ultimately to be proficient, it's not just what the book says. I need a teacher who has done this before that can say, well, this is what it looks like, who can show me in my practice, no, when you did this, this was wrong. This is what, you know, that actually studies me and that can challenge me in appropriate ways. I need a discipler. I need a trainer. Or, or let's use another example. You know, I think of with my, my daughter, and as we, she prepares to have her first baby, and, you know, we have all these uh, of her friends that are having their children. How many of you remember that have had, had a baby, you know, that, that beforehand you read all these books about what to expect when you're expecting? And you read all these books, and, and you figure it out. And you thought, okay, when I'm prepared, I've, when the baby comes, I'm ready to go. How long did that confident last? It lasted until the first night that you were home alone. 
right? And suddenly the baby's crying and you're doing what the book says and the baby's still crying and what do you do? You know, you call your mom and she's, mom, what do I do? Help me. Or you call an experienced mom who has been there and saying, basically, the book helped, but I really don't know. I need someone, I need a model. I need somebody who's done this before to help me figure it out because I can't do it on my own. My friends, that's what the principle is teaching here. It's teaching that we cannot do it on our own, and we can't just, as much as Bible reading is good, I need, I need someone who has done it that is more mature, that's lived it out to help show me what it looks like. And that requires some degree of not only engagement, but vulnerability. That I can come and say, here's where I'm struggling, here, help me here. Or here, here's a sweat play, you can watch me and you can point out what I'm not doing right. And, and likewise, even as the disciple or even as the teacher, I need to be vulnerable in the way of saying, okay, this is what I'm learning. This is where I've messed up. This is how I'm growing in my faith. See, it's, it requires a sense of vulnerability that models the process, not the product. Now, this is difficult because sometimes in churches, we think of, well, the church is a place where if you're mature, you've got it all together. You don't struggle. You don't doubt. You don't, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't uh, mess up in any way. And, and we can't admit that we ever do because then what are people going to think about us? But that's not the picture of maturity that's taught in the Bible. The fact is, when you look in the Bible, the product of maturity, the person who doesn't mess up, there's only one of those, that's Jesus. <laughs> I'm not Jesus, neither are you. And so let's not pretend. You see, what we're called to do is we're called to be people who admit that there's struggle. Maturity isn't that we don't mess up. Maturity is that when we mess up, we surrender it right and right way to God and that we're growing. It's consistent growth. See, even as a church, we want to model this. I want to model this. I want to model this in a sense that, that some of you may even hear from time to time, we'll talk about things, and I'll, I'll admit, I struggle. I'll talk about weaknesses. I'll talk about where I've messed up. I'll talk about where I'm growing. I'll talk about going to get counseling, or we'll talk about these things. And I know when I do that, there may be some people, and there probably have been people that are visiting church, and they're like, Boy, we're looking for a church where a pastor has it all together. This is, you know, and there are probably people that have left because of that. I understand that. But yet I do it. Why? Because that's what God has called me to do. That's actually the biblical motto of pastor. That's what it teaches in Philippians 3. And if you're here and you're saying, I'm looking for the guy that's got it all together, let me give you a little clue. There are, only, there are two kinds of churches. There are churches where the leadership pretends they have it all together and churches where they are honest there isn't a place where we all have it all together. Again, that's Jesus. The rest of us are in the process of growing, and the process of maturity is how quickly we surrender to that. And so I still struggle. I struggle with temptation. I struggle with anger. I struggle with forgiveness. I struggle with doubt. You know, I struggle. My wife and I still fight. Sometimes I'm even wrong. I was thinking about it. I think that even happened once last year. I was wrong. And it's just, just like, well, maybe, maybe this will be another example that we fight. And, uh, you know, maybe, I think flowers were a better example last week. I should stay away from this. So let's go away from marriage. And, you know, actually, no, we're just, the idea is that we still struggle. We're learning. And that's what I'm trying to model. The fact is, is that I hope that as you show, here's what I'm learning, you can relate to me. Because if any of us are perfect, we can't relate to each other. We're, this is a place that we have to be vulnerable, that we have to be real, where it's okay to admit our struggles and our doubts and to say, hey, man, I'm proud of you for admitting that. Let's grow together because we're surrendering to Christ. We need those relationships. 
What do they look like? I'm going to just do this really briefly. You might look at that and say, he's got a long, lot of notes to go. Real brief. God calls us to these relationships, but what do they look like? And I want to look briefly at Paul. If you look at Paul, he had different kind of relationships, different kind of discipling relationships that defined part of who he was. And I think God calls us to the same thing. First of all, he calls us to have somebody like a Barnabas who shows us the path. If you look at Paul, we think of him as a spiritual leader. Go to Acts chapter 9. He's a new believer. Nobody wanted to hang out with him. Barnabas was the guy that came and, and, and loved on him when he was a brand new believer. Acts chapter 11, you know, Barnabas was, was called the pastor of this church in Antioch, and he goes and he finds Paul and says, here, come here, Paul. Let me teach you how to do this. Let me disciple you. That was his mentor. That was his teacher. The first missionary journey, it was Barnabas that went out with Paul as his assistant. And we need people like that that are going to invest in our life. I love Hebrews 13.7. It says, remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Find people that are ahead of you that say, okay, they're doing this right. Not perfect. And if you're a parent, find someone with kids that are older than your kids who are, who are doing, their kids are turned out well. Hang out with them. Find somebody who has the kind of marriage you want to have and, and hang out with them. Look at their way of life and try to hang out because we all need that. We're never going to figure this out on our own. We need not only a, bar, a Barnabas, we need a Silas, somebody to walk along with us. Yeah, after Paul and, and Barnabas split up, you know, he didn't go on a missionary journey alone. In fact, if you look in the Bible, he never is alone. Every missionary journey, every letter that he writes, there's always people with him because he understood that he needed people. He couldn't do it by himself. And so there were times that he had guys like Silas that was more of a peer that was walking alongside of him. The Bible calls us to that, you know, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by sinful, sin, sin's deceitfulness. If I don't have people encouraging me, walking with me, well, you know, the thing is that I'm going I'm to be, be blindsided. I'm weak. I'm, to, I'm, I'm, I'm set up to fail. We need, a, we need Silas as peers that are in the same place with us spiritually. But then as we grow, we also need a Timothy. When you look at Paul and his ministry, especially as he grew, he always had people, young people, that he was then teaching. As Barnabas taught him, now he had people like Timothy he taught. And um, now you might be thinking, well, that's just for the really mature. That's for, you know, well, actually, it's interesting. You look at the Great Commission. You know what the Great Commission says? It's God speaking to all of us. It says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. If you're a follower of me, go make disciples. Meaning, even if we're a relatively new believer, even if I don't know a lot, there's people that know less than me. I can go work with the kids. I can, I can find a, you know, if I've been a believer for a year, there's somebody here that's only been a believer a week. And so one of the things that happens is when I start to invest in other people, it actually forces me to dig deeper into my own faith because I have to figure out, okay, am I teaching them well? Do you have a Timothy? And lastly, this isn't really directly Paul, but it's one that I think we're going to really dig in more next week. Do you have a, a Nicodemus? Somebody who's not a believer that you're inviting to come and see. Somebody that, you know, that, and it might just be starting with saying, who are the people? How do I pray for them? How do I risk, you know, the, asking the questions? And it might just be spending time with them and, and seeing how God will open up doors. We're going to talk about that next week. But these are the relationships I think God has called us to. In the beginning, I talked about the Rocky movies and Sylvester Stallone. And, and I think it was just encouraging to hear him talk about him coming back to his Christian faith. But when he talked about that, he also then talked about how he not only came back, but the importance of connection. 
And he talked about how in the movies that, that the, the, the role of that trainer, and so that even in the Creed movies, he became that trainer. It became something that was essential. Now, when I think about Rocky, you know, if those who have watched, you, know, you think of the victory pose and the kind of like, you know, he's up there and the great victory. And when I think about that, I think about as a follower of Christ, you know, I want to finish life well. I want to be able to go through marriage and to be able to love my wife well. I want to love my kids well so that they think highly and they, they see me as an example when they're adults. I want to be able to live the life that I stand before God one day. And ultimately, as Paul said, he, God would say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You have run the race. You have completed the course. You know, you have come out victorious. I want to live that way. But when we see the movies, it's kind of like saying, how did they get there? Well, well, he was just the, you know, he was just the guy that was bumming around until he got the trainer, until he had the person that helped him get there. And that's, you know, it was interesting because Stallone talked about this and he said, one of the greatest failures he had was his propensity towards self-sufficiency. He had succeeded and he didn't need help. And, and he came back to Christ, he realized that he needed the trainers. If he was going to be victorious spiritually, he needed people to help him. Here's his quote. He said, you need to have the experience and guidance of someone else. You cannot train yourself. I feel the same way about Christianity and about what the church is. The church is the gym for the soul. We cannot train ourselves. That's not God's design. And the very word that the Bible used to describe what it means to follow Christ, we're a disciple. I cannot be a disciple by myself. I need to have the relationships of people that are further along and, and learning from them. This is what it looks like. I need to have people walking alongside of me that are training with me, pushing me when I get down, pointing out the end. I want to live a life that is victorious. I want to be able to live at the end to say, yes, I, I've lived that life. I want to hear God's affirmation. But what we need to realize is we will not get there on our own. God has laid out, in a sense, the training regimen the gym for the soul, the place where we learn and where we grow, but that includes discipleship. It includes relationships. And I want to encourage you, if you're in one, pursue it. There may be some people that, you, you know, COVID is just disengaged and, boy, you've gotten out of it and, boy, it's time to get back involved. It's just look for those opportunities. You may be there and you say, I don't know where to get involved. Let us help you. And we're going to be even starting, we're, we've got new things that we're going to be starting even up this coming, in the coming months of just saying, we want to create opportunities and help you find the place. It's not like we need it, it's we're doing it because, because I believe you need it. That, it. that we want to be, live a victorious life that's, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But to do that, we have to do it the way that God has designed. Intentional relationships are vital to discipleship. How can we help you find that? Take the effort, take the risk to pursue that. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.